Welcome to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, science, and all things performance for cyclists and triathletes, helping you be a stronger, more savvy athlete now and for many years to come. Here's your host, Menachem Brody. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode number 178 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. This week, I am incredibly grateful, humbled, uh, and thrilled to have been able to sit down with a guy who knows quite a bit about lifting heavy stuff, as well as uh, back injuries. Brian Carroll is a multi-time world record holder for powerlifting. Uh, he has been listed recently or recognized recently as having two of the top 20 greatest powerlifting performances of all time totaling 2,651 pounds when he was weighing 242 pounds body weight and 2,730 pounds when he was weighing 275 pounds. He has also squatted the most all-time weight of 1,306 pounds. Now, Brian has had a heck of a journey to get to where he is today, uh, setting world records as a powerlifter and then uh, essentially blowing his lower back apart. He'll tell us a little bit about it here. And then writing a book about his recovery to not only back to powerlifting, but back to setting world records after a serious injury where he worked extensively with um, Dr. Uh, Stu McGill. And uh, I was really excited to have Brian on. Uh, I had a a short-lived powerlifting career, and that's also how I found Dr. McGill doing something stupid in the weight room with a weight on my back that I shouldn't have done because I was following the research at the time when my coach said, you're an idiot. (laughs) Don't listen to that because it's not application. It is just something in a lab. And he was 100% right. So Brian and I sat down to talk about lifting heavy. Sure. Why did we do this? Because so many cyclists today are out there trying to lift heavy stuff. And as you're going to hear in this discussion, uh, this interview with Brian, uh, he really gets it. He really does. He is constantly asking refining questions. And you'll hear me say a few times, that's the answer that I wanted. I did not lead him. If you're an interviewer and you understand words and you understand how you can lead people, I left a very wide open question and he went to where I was hoping he would go uh, because I want you to hear it from someone who really knows how to lift heavy stuff. Right? Many of us think we're lifting heavy. Brian has lifted the heaviest things in the world that any man or woman has lifted. And it is impressive uh, to hear the knowledge and depth with which he understands not only how to lift heavy stuff, but the many considerations that you need to take before you lift heavy. This includes Brian going into details of if you want to get into lifting heavy squat and, and deadlift how to do it. And it doesn't involve going to the gym and crushing yourself every single week. And he's going to tell us towards the end of this interview exactly what you need to do if you actually want to lift heavy stuff. There's a number of different topics that we covered here. Uh, They're all focused on lifting heavy stuff for cyclists and triathletes. So uh, as we we go through, we're going to talk about a number of different things, uh, how we go through and actually write a program, considerations in making a program for cyclists and triathletes, tissue considerations, posture considerations, what your end goal is, and a whole host more. So this is a great uh, interview. Brian is so well-spoken, and I, I was just blown away. Uh, to get a chance to look at, uh, talk to one of the guys that I looked up to for so many years uh, when I was trying to lift heavy stuff. So uh, I hope you enjoy this interview. Uh, two housekeeping pieces here. Uh, for the month of December uh, of 2023, uh, we're running a special here to train with me for $1. If you are interested in working with me as your coach, I will work with you for $1. And essentially, think of it as a super low-risk chance to take the car for a drive, if you will. So you get to experience what a personalized strength training program is. Now, this podcast is going to post here, I believe, on the 10th of December. So it's not a lot of time. I'm doing this on purpose. I want people who have been thinking about doing a personalized program uh, for strength training, but maybe they're not really sure. So it's a low risk entry uh, to personalized strength pra- uh, training programming. I pull no punches. You're getting the full on uh, opportunity to work with me. And if you are interested, send me an email 
Brody, B as in boy, R-O-D as in dog, I-E at humanvortextraining.com. Brody at humanvortextraining.com. And we will set up a short call to talk about you so you can tell me a little bit more about you and how I can help you best. Now, the second announcement is I am working on my second book. And today's topic that we discussed with Brian has uh, something that is going to draw the attention for folks because, uh, well, I won't give it away, but keep your eyes open on humanvortextraining.com as well as the Human Vortex Training uh, Facebook and Instagram pages because uh, I'm going to be uh, just giving hints and clues and insights as to what the book will be. It should be released in early 2024, uh, January or February. So I'm very excited for this, and that is the follow-up to my international best-selling strength training for cycling performance, uh, which has been bouncing around the top 25 here this year in the fall on Amazon in a number of countries, actually. So uh, it was number one and number two for quite a few weeks, and now it's come back down. But uh, if you would like to get your hands on that book, you can head on over to Amazon. So Strength Training for Cycling Performance will give you everything that you need in the internationally best-selling book on the topic. Well, without much further ado, let's get into today's episode, number 178, with Brian Carroll on things or what you need to know to lift heavy shoe-duff. Yeah, I did that on purpose. We're keeping this G. All right. Enjoy the episode. Uh, And I apologize, by the way, for the audio quality. Uh, We jumped into this interview right after I finished the Big Year Blueprint, and I forgot to plug in my microphone, which you're listening to here. So if my sound is not as crisp as it normally is, that's why. Uh, But hey, when you get the ear and to have a conversation uh, with one of the all-time strongest men, uh, you you jump on it. So enjoy the episode and uh, looking forward to having you guys subscribe and leave us a review. Let's get to it. Three, two. Brian, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on and uh, looking forward to talking with you for the next hour. I'm good. Thank God, man. We were just having a great time going back and forth here, uh, talking about your experiences and and where you're at and who you're helping. Let's start off with a a basic intro for the folks who don't know you. Uh, Who is Brian and Carol and what are you up to these days? Um, Well, I'm up to helping as many people as I can. Uh, A lot of average Joes with back pain, trying to transition and getting their life back. But on the other hand, a lot of weekend warriors that uh, love to squat and bench and deadlift that may not be best suited to do those or have the um, foundation. And we can talk about the, you know, how to build a foundation for heavy lifting. But these are the people I see that get into CrossFit and they're trying to deadlift double body weight in just a couple of months. So Going back to 1999, I started powerlifting. I got very serious about it, and uh, I hit some world records early on. I won some world titles, but I also really injured my back. And in 2009, it it really started to manifest. And fast forward a couple of years of struggling, trying all the traditional approaches, the Western, the Eastern, everywhere. You have clients all over the world, thankfully, in just about every continent. And the commonality is bad treatment, in my opinion, is is bad, poor treatment. Uh, They don't spend time with the patient. They throw medication at it. And a lot of the research is just the data that they use and old cookie cutter programs. So I failed with all that. And then in 2013, I got with Dr. McGill and uh, he got me on on the track to recovery by removing the cause of my pain taking, I had to take a year off, a year plus off from competition. And we authored a book about my return and eventually not just coming back and competing for another seven years, but coming back and being the first person to ever squat 1300 pounds, regardless of a weight class or anything like that. So we authored a book called Gift of Injury that has been, uh, it's been released for six years, but we recently updated about three years to talk a little bit about the uh, the, the push towards the, the, the world record lift. And uh, after that world record, I retired. I told God when I was walking up to the platform, get me through one more lift and then I'm done. You know, because at that point I was okay with whatever happened. Like if I got under the bar and my back blew apart again, you know, I had a pretty serious uh, couple in plate fractures. My sacrum was split and my discs were kind of flattened, a little bit of retrolisthesis and shifting. Um, but 
the thing is though, I know that anything can happen under the bar. And uh, that was the last time I wanted to be okay with whatever outcome it was. And uh, I got the lift. I kept my promise to myself and to God and to uh, anyone else I may have told that I was done. And that's been three years. And now, um, you know, I, I've been working with people, helping them get out of pain, but I've really focused on it more so the last five years since I got certified in the McGill method. And that's what my life's work is now is helping as many people as possible, help them identify and remove their cause, rebuild capacity, and then get them back on the bike or the road or the platform or the octagon or the swimming pool, you know, there's a, or, or back on the acting performing stage or camera or whatever. So uh, that's kind of it in a nutshell. And uh, I have two daughters and uh, they're twin daughters that were born in uh, during the pandemic. So uh, that is where my focus is now. My wife, my daughters and helping as many people as possible and in, in trying to put out good content. But I have a caveat about the content if you you're interested in it. Very much so. Yeah. All right. So I kind of rambled there a little bit, but I I want to give the caveat about the content because we talked about the content that I've been putting out on YouTube and then we trim it up and put it on Instagram. I've got a good team that's been helping me uh, get that out there so I can be busy seeing clients and making a difference. Here's the catch with YouTube, Instagram, X, all these other platforms. I can't help you with a specific program by putting a video out there and then answering and following up in the comments or the message box. I'd be doing you a great disservice if I commented back to you and said, yes, follow this program to the T. Um, in a perfect world, I'd love to be able to do that, but someone else's uh, you know, best exercise that makes them a world record holder is the next person's career ender, or they end up in the hospital, or they end up uh, you know, um, having a bunch of uh, spinal fusions and such. It's, it could be bad news. So that's one caveat. I love putting the content out, but people think that they could take something from Squat University and something from Matt Winning and Brian Carroll and Stuart McGill. Then next thing you know, they're putting this hodgepodge program together. It's not custom. They know enough to be dangerous, but not enough to how to fuse a program together. And then they say, McGill's stuff doesn't work. Brian's an idiot. You know, this. So watching the content, this is for marketing. This is for a tidbit, maybe an idea. But ultimately, you need to read back mechanic. You need to read gift of injury, ultimate back fitness and performance. Um, you need to read these books to have the whole context, not a five or 10 minute video of best concerning a particular issue or technique or someone's leverage or injury history. I absolutely want to give you a huge bear hug, although you probably crushed me if we were to do that, because there's so many people putting content out. I had a couple comments on mine uh, a few times like, oh, we're three minutes into the video and still no exercise. It's like, dude, you got to have context. <laughs> Like you can't just take the exercise. There is a reason there's three minutes of, they're like, oh, you're rambling on. If you think that, then unsubscribe, don't follow, give me a thumbs down. Because exactly what you said, I've had a number of people come to me. Well, I, I tried the McGill method before, but it didn't work. And now I've had two surgeries. And now, you know, I'm coming back because I heard good things about you. Like, I don't care that you're McGill certified. And then they right. leave the first thing. They're like, well, I didn't realize that it was, that's the method. I thought it was, you know, McGill Crunch, Bird Dog, Side Planks, like there's so much context. So let, let's start with that. Building a program, and I avoided for years putting pre-made programs out for that, that exact reason. How do you look at building a program for someone? When you're looking at them, what are the two or three main considerations that Brian takes when looking at someone? Yeah, having the, the made programs, there's some things you can do. It put out there, there'd be a good start for people, but then you start getting in the weeds uh, sometimes if they start becoming too specific. But I have to do an assessment um, to determine, okay, how old this person is, what's their biological age versus athletic age or lifting age? What are their weak and strong points, of course? How are they built? Um, and then what are their goals? You know, if someone's trying to be a powerlifter, we're going to have to do some powerlifting stuff, but we need to build a foundation. And typically a foundation would be getting walks in, building the core musculature with low hanging fruit. Go for low hanging fruit, whether they're a powerlifter, a cyclist, a triathlete, or a weekend warrior. Get out and walk, 
eat decently, do the McGill Big Three, start doing some hinges, some carries, some drags, some pushes, some pulls. And then I start them off with very basic foundations. So that could be like a template. That's a template someone could follow, but it isn't going to be super specific on the dosage and everything going forward. This is like a starter. I, I start everyone off with basically a baseline and then we deviate from there, depending on how they're doing. If their goals are more lifting centric, then we'll start loading them up with kettlebells, depending on their, obviously if I have a pro and they're not hurt, I'm not just going to say you got to do kettlebells now, but if they want to lift heavy and they don't have good form and engrams, I'll start them off with a dowel or broomstick. Then we'll go to a kettlebell to get the form or body weight and then kettlebell. And then we'll put a barbell on their back. Completely different if I'm rebuilding an athlete, trying to get them back on the bike, in the pool or on the platform. But building a core, a foundational core, building hips, building shoulders, and just being robust and having endurance. Doing more conditioning type stuff, kind of regardless of the foundation or the end goal is building the foundation with the things like carries, sled drags, core endurance, holding the big three, and walking is like a really good start, uh, regardless of the goal. And then you have to get a lot more, um, you know, specific when, when you go from there. So for the listeners out there, you mentioned engrams. Um, can you define that for them so they have a better understanding? So the way I would uh, explain an engram is uh, a, like an automatic default pattern that's ingrained in your brain that you don't have to think about. It, it's just a reaction. So sometimes when I'm teaching people how to squat or how to um, move to remove the cause of their pain, they have a, a posterior disc bulge, flexion plus compression, you know, lights them up. So they'll ask me, Brian, do I, do I have to always move like a robot? And I'm like, well, what do you mean? They're like, well, I have to think about, you know, sipping my air, stiffening, pulling my lats and my pecs down, going down to shortstop squat or whatever it may be to, to do the movement. And, and then I'll ask them, have you seen me move? They'll say, yeah, I've, I've been watching you. Do I move like a robot? No. Well, it's become an engram. I can flow with it now. Um, so it's the same thing. When someone's learning the squat, yeah, you're going to have to think about all these things at first, but it's second nature to me because I've been doing it for so long. It's an engram. I don't have to think about stiffening my core and pulling my lats and pecs down before I unrack the bar to get tight. So it's practicing things over and over so it becomes uh, automatic. And, and when people say, well, man, I just feel like I'm moving like a robot all the time. And whatever they're given um, goal is, or if they're an actor, or if they're a um, tennis player, or golfer, or whatever, I'll ask them a question. And I'll say, how long did it take you to learn how to throw that punch or learn that new head kick? They'll say, dude, I worked on it for six months. Okay, but now it's an engram, right? You just throw it. You don't think, okay, I'm going to throw a high kick. No, it's an engram now. And they'll say, oh, okay, so I practice it, I get better at it then I just can do it without even thinking about it. There you go. Awesome. So, so this is pretty much the foundation, you know, as far as I'm concerned for everything, right. Is, is learning and relearning and, and making it uh, unconscious uh, movement pattern. You mentioned a number of different things here, as far as being able to work towards lifting heavy stuff, right. That's the bat the battle cry we have now for cyclists is they went from high reps, lightweights to lift heavy stuff. Mm -hmm. What would you consider to be the building blocks towards lifting heavy stuff if we were to do like a bus stop kind of list? Moving towards lifting heavy stuff. So I'd have to ask you the question back. What do you consider and what does the what's the crowd getting at when they say lifting heavy stuff? What does that mean to the cyclist crowd or the average Joe crowd? What does that mean? I love that you're refining the question. So important, man. <laughs> So for this audience, uh, the way research has gone is just gravitational pull, literally more okay. pounds on the bar. That is what they're thinking okay. as far as lifting heavy stuff. Okay. So pushing up that intensity and really pushing the limits on the uh, the weight training. Well, if they're a cyclist, the, the heaviest stuff may not be the best thing for them. Um, progressions to things like suitcase carries, bottoms up carries, goblet squats, Split squats for some people. Now, some people 
might have an SI joint issue cycling, and they may not want to further exacerbate and light it up with a weighted uh, pelvis twisting like the split squat. But lunges and split squats can be great. Not everyone has to go and lift. Here's another trend that I've, I'm seeing. I'm seeing a trend with the exact phrase that you're saying, heavy stuff. I'm seeing super heavy split squats and lunges. I'm talking anywhere from 300 to 800 pounds on the lunge. And that is that is not what I'd recommend for anybody for any sport. The juice, you cannot justify that being the juice worth the squeeze by doing that. There's so many other things you could do to get an athlete to get that single leg power or the split power that you want to achieve. But Loading up and having someone do lunges like that, it, to me, is a suicide for their athletic career. And these are NFL athletes and, and different uh, high-end athletes that I see do this. And I'm like, man, there's so many other things that you could do. Uh, why not do some kettlebell lunges? Why do you have to put a bar on, on your back with 700 pounds and do a maxed-out single? What is that doing for your football playing? Nothing, you know? So the least effective dose of everything to get to the goal. Now, if you're going to be a power lifter, you got to lift heavy stuff and you got to build up to the barbell and high intensity. But if you're an endurance athlete, man, you need to lift heavy enough to achieve your goals. If strength is lacking, you're great at endurance, but you, you don't have strength to be able to push or sprint, then you work on that aspect of it. But when people talk about just loading a squat bar up and putting it on someone's back or pulling the deadlift from the floor or loading up a heavy bench press uh, like some people do for uh, just the average Joe or the average athlete, man, I think there's a lot better tools that one could be using than just loading up a, a two or 300 pound squat, uh, barbell squat for a golfer or for a cyclist. You know what I mean? Very much. What, what's your opinion then? Cause I, I see it all the time. I have right now I've got second and third year development track cyclists who are moving stuff. Uh, but even then, when you look at the, the gravitational pull, it's not that heavy, but how we do it is, and people seem to scoff. Like you, you tell them, all right, grab the eight kilo or 12 kilo kettlebell. And people, the, the look on their face is like, what? It, it's almost be beneath them to do that. What's your experience been with people looking at the kettlebells that way. And why do you think that is? Because it's not just the States, it's also overseas. Yeah, it's 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 a worldwide thing that I see doing virtual consults with people. Um, everyone thinks that you just got to lift as heavy as possible. And if you don't get sore or you're not gassed and puking and fatigued, then you haven't done anything. But I think there are exceptions to some of the best people in the world they do work really hard. They probably work too hard. Now, most people that I see for back pain, top athletes, whatever it is, sometimes, but I'd say about 80% of the time, it's because they do too much. I don't see too many people. Yeah, there's some lazy people out there, lethargic. Yes, we get it. They got to drop some weight. They start feeling better. But most people have just destroyed themselves because they're exercise addicts. So, you got to look at the tool. Is that the best tool for the job? If it is, use it. If it's not making you a better cyclist, a better soccer player, better football player, what good is it? Is it just because you like to lift heavy weight? Well, you might be jeopardizing your uh, multi-million dollar contract because you want to squat heavy when there's really no reason for you to squat heavy because you're a kicker. You know, like uh, you have to uh, you have to ask a lot of questions back when someone's saying, Hey, should I lift heavy stuff? Like, what's the goal? You know, and what's your lifting experience? Do you have a core? Some people, it's surprising. They might uh, not look like they, they, they're they very muscular, but they have a really good core because they have a history of gymnastics or um, I don't know, some, some other type of uh, dance or something. And then they can progress pretty quick, whereas someone else might look like they have a good genetics, good capacity. You got to start them off with just doing a front plank for five or 10 seconds because they they got nothing there. So, yeah, everyone's so different and it's got to be the right tool for the right uh, goal. So in your eyes, what are the big considerations for cyclists? So they're spending time on the bike in a crouched forward position, essentially. And most cyclists from March in the northern hemisphere, from March until October, they don't touch a weight. They might do some core, some planks, side planks. 
So they've lost all those tissue adaptations. And that's been my flag in the ground the last couple of years. It's like, you have to lift year round and it's counterintuitive. Like mid season is heavy stuff, but it's heavy relative. Like a kettlebell, 16 kilos is usually more than enough. But mm -hmm. in your eyes, what are the big considerations for cyclists before they start lifting heavy? Building the, so building the foundation and then maintaining at least year round, maintaining the, uh, the adaptations, like you said, while they're pushing, you know, in season or however you want to put it for, for depending on, look, I, I've worked with some cyclists that are very kyphotic. Some aren't so kyphotic. A lot of them have back problems. Some of them don't. I, especially the kyphotic ones, they're not having pain, especially i definitely wouldn't try to load that up with a barbell and have them do heavy, heavy squats with the bar on their back. You know, that's just one consideration I would think about because uh, that may not, that'll be stressing. You're trying to tune that, uh, trying to tune that curve for resilience to be able to, you know, take that axial load. And then you're, you know, you're going to have it in flexion for a long time. So those discs are softened a bit. So I wouldn't load that up heavy. Um, so I would tune that, kyphosis depending on if it's a problem or not with a little bit of pnf stretching and such but some people look I've, I've seen enough cyclists some people seem like they're really leaned over some styles are not so much leaned over um and i guess it depends on if they are a super long endurance cyclist or more of a sprinter shorter distance or if they're a triathlete and they do cycling plus the running plus the swimming there's so many different uh, considerations there but barbell, I don't think the barbells are very important. I'd be grabbing the kettlebells and the dumbbells like you talked about and then having them, if they want to hip hinge, have them hip hinge with the, with the goblet squat and then make it a little bit uh, more challenging for the anterior core by holding it out a little bit out in front of them, a little bit more anterior core, a little bit more um, quadricep and uh, knee driven, you know, build a little bit of, uh, you know, stimulation in the knees and the quadriceps and everything and you know we need some stimulation of the of the of the joints we don't want to wear them out doing squats but some stimulation for the knees uh, can be helpful there with uh letting the knees track forward so it really just depends on the uh weak points someone with knee problems maybe they never want to track their knees forward because all they can do is if they save up for two weeks they can go on a long ride you know otherwise if they squat or do anything else it's sat. So one, one particular tricky one is when a cyclist or an athlete in general has knee problems and back problems because they can't walk very much. They need to cycle because the cycling, like the recumbent bike's great for some people's knees, but then it's not good on their back. So there's a lot of considerations for cyclists, but treat them like the endurance athlete they are, build their strength up as needed, but don't try to turn them into a power lifter. That's a big no-no, in my opinion. The least effective weightlifting dose and then up it as they need be. If they're if they're a weaker person, they'll need to strength train, but strength train year-round and have it ebb and flow. Ebb and flow. <clears throat> so you touched on on so many important points. I want to try and dial into one or two. One is the, the really big trend. You mentioned the kyphosis. And I, I think this is lost a lot uh, amongst many of the coaches out there who are well-meaning. So they go, oh, well, we're in a kyphotic curvature for the listeners. That's where you rounded forward, kind of like you're bent over uh, on the in the drops. And they say, you know, and this is the other rallying cry is uh, posterior chain. You need to deadlift heavy. Right. You know, what What's your, your response to that? Deadlifting heavy for, for the cyclists would not be um, one of the things that uh, I would have at the top of the list. Now, for some people, pulling with a trap bar elevated, so you're doing a, basically a hip hinge from about this position, and you can lock in, drive the heels through the floor and stand up with it. For some people, they need to be, build a little bit of strength with that. that will help their hip drive and leg drive. They might not be able to squat, but they can hip hinge and, and, and pull from a trap bar. So that could be an option for, for some people, but loading cyclists up from heavy deadlifts from the floor and having them squat ass to grass, especially the deadlifts from the floor with the straight bar, because then you have considerations about um, 
asymmetry development in the back and the arms and then, you know, tearing a bicep off like I have. So what good is deadlifting 500 pounds being a cyclist if you avulse your bicep and you can't hold on to the handlebars for three months or whatever it is? So is the juice worth the squeeze? Deadlifting from the floor, I would not have a cyclist do that. I, I don't have many of my athletes. I ask them, do you want to compete in powerlifting? Because some are like, I kind of want to compete. Do you for sure want to compete in powerlifting? I don't think so. Okay. There's no reason, in my opinion, you're asking me, you're here, you're paying me to see me. Do not pull from the floor. You have very little to gain and a lot to lose. Elevate it up, pull from a trap bar like they do in the NFL and the good NFL training rooms and practice the hip hinge and drive through with the neutral spine. So that, that leads to a, a, a great, you know, offshoot question. We're also, we kind of, I think, perused over it a little bit, and that is the tissue qualities that we have to get, right? So you mentioned earlier about how the discs are a little bit more flexy, bendy, if, if you will, because that's what the sport demands. Mm -hmm. If we were building a top power lifter, like I remember my coach when I first started, he's like, Brody, you're pulling heavy once a week or squatting heavy once a week. When I tell you to take the day off, <laughs> take the day off. Right. That was, you know, his gruff voice. What are your considerations for, excuse me, <clears throat> can't do it anymore uh, for the cyclist to understand the tissue adaptations they need to get to lift heavy stuff? It, it takes a lot. And, and if you've heard any of Dr. McGill's um, interviews or podcasts, he always, not always, but he oftentimes brings up the trainer who has the little old lady uh, deadlifting her body weight is the goal in one month or two months. And she's not tuned those discs for that, uh, 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 that, that lift and they're soft and they end up getting a, a disc bulge of sorts. So what you have to understand is the, the, the collagen, the fabric of the annulus is very tunable. You can make it stiff and rigid for a, like a power lifter. I'm not going to be bendy. I'm not going to be super flexible, but I'm, I'm going to be more like an Oak tree right? Strong if you load it on top. Um, someone like a gymnast or even in some ways a cyclist, um, they're going to be more of a willow branch. They're going to be more bendy and flexible. They're not, they're not going to do well with load, but they're going to do great with bending and such. When you start mixing up stiffening and bending, you get, you become poor at, at, at both of those. And then you end up with uh, some disc bulges and some, and some problems. So the tissue adaptation, uh, in particular, the annulus and the end plates, for someone that wants to be a power lifter that doesn't have a history of lifting heavy, they need to slowly build up over time. Lift once a week, uh, squat once a week, bench once a week, maybe deadlift some people every other week. And uh, it isn't about hypertrophy and feeling like you did something every day. It's a completely different sport. You have a, a, a very quick, explosive strength sport like powerlifting. You do one lift and you're done. Whereas in cycling, you might be here in this position for 15 hours or five hours or two hours. It's endurance versus absolute strength and explosiveness, and then you're done. You've got to tune that body, in particular those discs, for the demands of the sport, trying to do this for hours upon time, leaning forward and a little bit of flexion. And then trying to load it up with the bar on your back or pulling from the floor with loaded flexion, you know, getting rounded over is a good way to end your career. And you won't be able to uh, deadlift either because uh, you've blown your back apart. So let's take a, and I know the answer is it depends, but we're, let's paint in very broad strokes. So male, 45 year old, overall healthy, been cycling eight to 10 hours a week recreationally for the last eight, 10 years decides, mm -hmm. Hey, I, I lifted in high school, but you know, I hear lift heavy stuff. So I'm going to go deadlift. What would a rough idea of how frequently, if they wanted to build up to heavy for them, would you have them theoretically deadlift or squat heavy every 10 days, every seven days, again, very broad strokes, just to help the audience understand, like we aren't hitting the gym twice a week to lift heavy stuff. Right. So <clears throat> what I would have them do is when someone's, let's say this person's riding eight to 10 hours a week, are they doing riding every day or is it every other day? How does that work? This is the thought process I want the listeners to learn. So let's say back to back 
two hour rides on the weekend and then every other day through the week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Got it. Okay. So what I would do if they're going to weight train, um, of course, like one of the first things we went over is building the foundation, not jumping back into it after not lifting for X amount of years in, in living in your high school football glory days. You got to rebuild that foundation. A lot of things have changed, especially with adapting your spine uh, and, and your body as a whole uh, for endurance. The, the heaviest, most stressful rides I would have the furthest away from your, your lifting. Now, I definitely wouldn't be pulling from the floor. I wouldn't be squatting heavy. But what I would do is on your potentially on your days that you ride, Maybe you find that you like to train uh, a day or two after, or you find that you like to train before you like to go ride or after you go ride. But the biggest thing is if you're pushing the endurance hard, I would not be pushing the strength training super hard until, but it depends on the athlete though, too. We talking about Lance Armstrong, right? You know, what, what are we, who are we talking about? So I think it's important to stagger your endurance training when you're giving that a real hard push and maybe backing off the strength training a little bit, but you're still doing it. So having your heavier days as you build them up further away from your heavier cycling days might be an option, or you find that it's a great warm up for you to go and get a, an hour lift in before you go do one of your uh, couple hour uh, rides or something like that. There, there's a lot of different ways to skin the cat, but Again, I'm going to go back to my point earlier. Most people I see for injury, they're not, it's not that they're not doing enough. They're doing too much. They're doing way too much. And a lot of the, I guess you could say they're not doing enough of the right things, but they're, it's not for a lack of effort or uh, rigidity in their training program. It's just, they're doing the wrong things and they're stuck into a, in, in a continuum of bad information and bad exercises and overtraining like what you're hearing? Hit subscribe and leave us a review. That pretty much describes most cyclists to a T. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and they just, they keep digging their hole deeper and deeper. They'll take a two or three weeks off and then their pain goes away. They're back. Now we're talking about back pain. Their back pain goes away. A cyclist I'm working with or a triathlete, they feel good. And then they disappear. They stop emailing you back. You know, they were, they're stuck on their side. They're antalgic with the lean or whatever it may be, posterior disc bulge. They can't get out of bed. And then they do a virtual surgery as we talk about backing off, not stretching, not bending, maybe some tummy lies, maybe a little bit of core work, the big three, start building a little bit of acute stiffness. Then they wake up one day and they're completely pain-free. Well, pain-free does not mean healed. The problem is after they feel good for two or three weeks, they ghost you and they're gone. And then you see them um, posting a picture on social media, waving to the camera in the hospital bed, got my microdisectomy. I thought I was fixed, blew my back out again, two months or six months or four months later. That's, that's what I see so much with different people. And it's just like pain-free doesn't mean healed. You've got to back off and rebuild the machine. And just because you're not having pain doesn't mean that you should just get right back to everything you're doing. You got to slowly ease back into doing that slowly. Well, that that's something that exactly what you described. Like I've, that's been one of the, the themes that I've had is I get people to the point where we're making progress. I tell them we're going to get to a point where ideally we have 28 days, one month of zero pain, no, no twinges, no nothing. And when that comes, that is when we double down on what we're doing. That doesn't mean we do double the work. It means we continue right. doing what we are doing. And Brian, 80, 75, 80% of the people, I have to, I don't remember what the exact number is. I have it written down somewhere. Exactly what you said. They disappear. And then I see them on social media. Oh, I hurt my back again. Uh, they disappear off of Strava for cyclists and triathletes. You don't see them. And you message yeah. them. They ghost you. They ghost you. And then all of a sudden, like, well, can you give me a referral for surgery? Like, Dude, what uh, where'd you go? Like we were just getting started and they, we have this obsession that pain-free means that you're, you're 
cured. If I remember correctly, I think it's actually in the, the intro of your book, you actually talk about how you were testing, right? So you get pain-free and you're like, oh, let me see if it's still there. So it's essentially yeah. like- No, it feels good. I'm fine. Exactly. Or you, you test it until you trigger it again. You're like, oh, I can go here. Let's see. Let's take five kilos and see what I can do. How do we start to reframe that? If you don't have the pain, good. We're just getting started. How do you make that message clear and, and get buy-in? Oof. It depends on the person. And, and the more assessments I do with Stu, the more I pick up from him. And the little things that I pick up. And you've got to appeal to the personality. You've got to appeal to the person's um you've got you've got to meet them at their level where they are. Um Sometimes I negotiate it, it really, you know, not all back injuries are created equal. And we could probably talk about this for three hours, right? Low back pain is so general, like saying I have low leg pain, you know, what, what's going on with me? How do I fix my lower leg pain? Well, is it your gastroc? Is your soleus? Is it your, is it your tib? Is it your fib? Like what? I, I, I don't know. Do you have a blood clot? I, I don't know what's going on with your lower leg problem, but the, the, the problem is with low back pain, it's so it's so general that some people come and they're not that banged up. They're really not. They just got to take a little time off. You rebuild them. They got a little disc bulge. They get very lucky. They can vacuum it back in. It, it gets off the nerve roots. They stop having ridiculous symptoms and they get back to lifting. And then they're pretty good. They're, they're, it's a pretty smooth, like almost linear process. Other people come to you. And they are absolutely annihilated. They have facet joints that are really arthritic and and uh, they've grown and they're grinding and they've got stenosis and everything. That's a little bit longer pathway to get someone pain-free. So sometimes I, I have to negotiate with someone. Uh, sometimes people will tell me I'm not going to take time off from cycling or lifting or, or whatever. And they only have pain sometimes. And I'll say, okay, let's document this to cover my ass. Okay, in a perfect world, you're coming to me. I want you to listen to me. You should stop cycling. You should stop lifting and stop having these flare-ups once a month or every other month and heal. And I can almost guarantee you your performance is going to go up because you're not going to be down every month or every six months. So what I'll do is a lot of the time I'll say, fine, incorporate these things, keep lifting, but here's what you have to do. Promise me if your pain does not get better, then you got to admit it to me and we got to do it my way. Now, if someone's really effed up and they're having their big toes on fire and they're having, you know, crazy uh, red flags everywhere, I, I won't have that negotiation with them. And I will immediately refer them to a surgeon or something like that. Some people I just have to break contact with because they won't listen. And I don't want my name attached to the craziness that they're doing. So you got to meet them where they are. Unfortunately, some people, you just won't have uh, a way to get through to them. They got to fail. Some of those people do come back. Those 80% of people that get better and disappear. Some of them will come back and say, you know what? You were right. I want to do it right your way. Um, then sometimes you can help them. Sometimes you can't. They've done so much damage that it's going to be a long time before they're feeling better. So it's appealing to their ego, uh, having empathy and listening to their story, but also they have to be in a place like I was, like I talk about in Gift of Injury, where I just had to succumb to the process. So people have to be ready. You know, I, I did a, a consult with someone, uh, a, a performer that I really look up to, real cool dude, and uh, has been in a lot of the, the coolest movies you'll see. Unfortunately, this is his first dealing with back pain. He's got fresh back pain. And what, what do we know about people with fresh back pain? They're the worst clients and patients because they just think it's going to be like their shoulder or their knee, you know, a couple of weeks of therapy, rested, I'm as good as new. This person with the posterior disc bulge, uh, unfortunately, isn't, isn't listening to me. So I just got to kind of let it go. You can't help everyone. I think this person's going to have to get worse. It might start affecting his wallet and his finances because he can't perform. Then he comes back and says, you know what? I know you told me not to lift. I kept lifting. I disappeared. I want to do it right and listen to you because I need to be able to pick up my kids again. Some people you just got to let fail.
that's the challenge I, I have mostly with cyclists, more so than triathletes. Triathletes tend to seem to find something else to challenge themselves with. Like they're just that personality where they have swim, bike, run, because it's always like here and then there and then there. Whereas yeah. with cyclists, like, oh, well, I decided to pick up gravel riding instead of road riding because that's better, right? Because I, <laughs> and then I have to move the bike more. And it's like, dude, your yeah. core is so – and core is everything for the listeners. It's neck, elbow, and knees. And I, I would even argue it's the entire body, but yeah. it's not yeah. that midsection. Um, and you mentioned earlier about suitcase carries and upside down carries and mastering this, but cyclists as a whole, it's, they're like gluttons for punishment, right? It's not like the, the, the soccer player where they had a hard slide tackle and they, they pretend like their ankle had been blown apart. Like right. they're hard men and women, so they can go out and suffer. And there's just this stigma of, well, your back can't be that bad. You just have to raise the saddle, lower the saddle, go to an upright bike. And they just keep going down. And it's almost comical to a point where it's like, dude, when it gets bad enough, you can come see me. And if you don't want to see me, backfitpro.com. Like these are the people I, I trust to go through. Mm-hmm. And the number of folks that that just keep going and I get emails, well, what if I put a shim in my cleat? Or I, I went to another bike fitter and they say that I need a longer top tube. That's just how far the, the long bike is. It's mm-hmm. like, dude, you they'd rather spend money than actually take time off and change their movement patterns. And what you just described, it's frustrating for for a practitioner who wants to help somebody. What would your advice be to the individuals out there who do have back pain, who maybe have started to read back mechanic, picked it up, kind of got to a point where they dialed it down, where they can ride again? You know, it's a one, two instead of a five, six. What would your words of wisdom be to those folks? Get it down to exactly what you said earlier. Get a month pain free. Just doing the walking, the big three, stay off the bike, stay off, stay off the platform, stay away from the barbell, string together a month of feeling good, and then start adding a little more difficulty to the big three, or maybe a stir the pot, uh, maybe some bodyweight squats, some TRX rows. But going back to the, the advice that I would give them just right out of the gate, Don't rush it. Take care of it now before it becomes a big deal and it makes you take care of it. Because some people, their their weekend warrior uh, activities are just affected or their powerlifting at night is just affected. Then you have the people that all of a sudden can't go to work and then they can't powerlift. They can't cycle. Then it's all of a sudden like, oh, my God, you know, this is a big deal. Now I got to take all this time off. I have to spend all this money uh, now when they tried to put it off and uh, they should have just taken care of it before it was a big deal because, uh, you know, I've heard different psychologists and psychiatrists talk about with mental health, there's no such thing as rock bottom. Things can always get worse. Well, with back pain and people's injuries and mechanisms, it can always get a little bit worse in in my experience. So when people say, oh, my back's just effed, it can't get any worse (laughs) You have some other healthy tissue in there somewhere that could become not so healthy. Uh, so don't say that. Take care of it before it becomes a big deal. Take, Give yourself permission to back off for a little bit. You can take a couple months off from lifting or cycling or whatever it is you're trying to do, and you can get it back. I'm living proof. I have hundreds of testimonials of people that have gotten it back. Does that guarantee that you will get it back? No, it doesn't guarantee success. But if it means enough to you, you'll do what's necessary. And that's what I did with Dr. McGill. What was necessary for me? Taking a year off from competing. I didn't care. What do I need to do? Um, So people have to get to that point. Give yourself permission to back off. You can't always be this super athlete. Focus on your mental health. Back off for a while and uh, take care of it before it bites you in the ass. Well, let, let's take it back because you've now mentioned three times in, in this answer and two others, the staples of building a proper foundation of walking with good technique. I actually have a video from assessment I did yesterday from a fairly high level cyclist. Yeah. How are you able to, to function? But walking, you mentioned uh, suitcase carries and, and building up the core before. So yeah. what, you know, most cyclists are lifting heavy legs. They kind of do core and maybe a little bit of upper body what would you consider the foundations of building a, I don't like the term, but you know, bulletproof yeah. human being. Yeah, man, just some type of variation of a press 
you know, like whether it be uh, some kind of, you don't need to do barbell stuff. You can do a bottoms up kettlebell press overhead, you know, unilateral, uh, some kind of pressing, some kind of dumbbell bench pressing of some sort. Some type, we mentioned carry, some kind of push, some kind of drag, um, different different calisthenics like uh, potentially pull-ups, push-ups, push-up planks, those types of things, man, I think are, are just great foundational they they work synergistically with the core and and multiple muscle groups. And I'm getting to my point, avoiding the bodybuilding stuff. People think that a big full muscle is an athletic muscle. No, it's about uh, it's about a lot more than that. Neuromuscular strength and uh, tendon strength, and it's not just about a big full muscle. It's about uh, endurance and uh, being able to send electricity to those muscles. A lot of the time. These people are genetically gifted to have these big balloon quads and big butts and big backs. But other times it makes them slow and unathletic when they try to build that bodybuilding, doing single arm isolated stuff, man, that's going to make you big and slow a lot of the time. Now, for some people, they can do any type of training. They get stronger. I guess some training with weights is better than nothing, but uh, being very specific and not trying to get a big pump and pump up like a bodybuilder, but strength training in ways um, that will help you get better at whatever your goal is and not just to look better because as a power lifter, as a cyclist, as a, you know, a tennis player, golfer, you're not a bodybuilder. So none of how you look, nothing about how you look matters in your end result. So if you want to look a little better and your performance suffers, I think you need a psychological exam. I don't know if I could, I can help you. I understand wanting to look decent, but if that becomes your priority, aesthetics, and you are a performer of some sort, there, there's a problem there. And I think a lot of the time this useless, you know, curl stuff and, you know, leg extensions, there's nothing wrong with doing those. But if that's your weight training workout, uh, with some exceptions being there, of course, but if that's the way you're going about it, like a bodybuilder, you're not going to be the best athlete. Well, that that's, I think, where a lot of the research is right now. And I did a, um, this is not to pat me myself on the back. I'm just sharing the story because I think it's poignant here. I did a presentation, a keynote at the science and cycling conference this past year. And, and some of the biggest researchers that I remember, you know, eyes wide open, like, holy cow, these are big names. And a lot of it has really been focused on the hypertrophy approach. And yeah. what I've tried to share is like, I love the work you guys are doing there's bigger fish to fry. Like, yes, we understand that lifting heavy stuff and the muscular hypertrophy, not just sarcolemic, but myofibrillar is what we're looking for. But there's more to the research that we should look at. And that is the ordering of exercises, the positioning, the cueing for exercises. Uh, and these are hard things to research. And it kind of went, you know, I don't think it was accepted well at all, considering the fact that eyes at the floor every time I walked up the aisle. That's a message that I'm hoping people will come around to because exactly what you just said, if you do a bodybuilder session, and that's what it is, three sets of 10, uh, like there's, we before we hit record, I mentioned there's a very well-followed social media personality, great cycling coach, fantastic. Mm -hmm. The stuff he says on that side for the uh, metabolic side, for the aerobics on the bike is amazing. He's got mm -hmm. great content and he means well, but he quotes a research study and then he says, oh, well, you're going to start off with four sets of 10 heavy deadlifts. And then you're going to do a breathe, uh, a jumping exercise. And then you're going to do three sets of 10 heavy back squats. I'm like, dude, that's, that's a recipe for injury. And people don't understand that there's bodybuilding, there's hypertrophy, and then there's performance. Mm -hmm. How, how do you differentiate? And that's what the diatribe was about is how do you differentiate between a hypertrophy bodybuilding program and one for performance and getting people to understand the difference between those? Ooh. It's a good question. The, the the sequence of exercise that you mentioned, it sounded just like a CrossFit workout. That's a CrossFit workout, you know. Um, that's a good question. So it's going to be multi-joint movements. Well, different. So when I think of strength, it's performance-based. It's not about feeling for a pump. It's multi-joint movements that engage the core and the ball and socket in some way. Um, versus just a single joint movement. When you're doing single joint movements and doing isolation, I think of that as bodybuilding, you know, um, whether it be bicep curls or 
um, you know, dumbbell presses or something like that or leg extensions. But when I think performance based, I'm thinking about bodybuilding is about making the lift as hard as you can to get the most fiber stimulation and pump it up and all that stuff. When you're training for strength and performance and building neuromuscular explosiveness and being fast, you're not doing a bunch of repetitions. You're trying to move it as fast as you can, which some people can still build muscle through that. You know, they can have hypertrophy through that, but they're not going to look like a bodybuilder. So the reps are going to be much lower typically for someone trying to build the strength and explosiveness. And they're not going to do it under a bunch of fatigue a lot of the time. They're not going to go and do four sets of 10 deadlifts and do a bunch of box jumps and then kipping pull-ups and then go and do snatches um, when they're not an Olympic lifter. So it's going to really come down to multi-joint lifts, not going for a pump, lower repetitions, and uh, it's got to be a good tool for that end game. You know, so it's not just about pumping up. But what was the initial... The, dip, so the differentiation between bodybuilding and performance stuff? Yeah, and, and hypertrophy. Asking the question to the practitioner or the client, okay, how does this carry over to you being a better A, B, C, whatever it may be? How does that carry over? And then demonstrate the exercise or the, the movement, the baseball swing, the tennis swing, whatever it is, the cycling, and then is that something that's going to help you do that? Or is it just going to make you look better while you're doing it? That's another way you can look at it too. Love that. That's a great cue. Well, I got two questions and then I, I think we'll wrap up. I have a whole bunch more. I wrote down like seven or eight more here, but we'll we'll try and stay focused and, and wary of your time. What about squatting and deadlifting heavy on the same day? We're talking about a cyclist or power lifter, yeah. an average Cy Joe? I love the clarification. Listeners, listen to what Brian is doing. He is asking a clarifying and very important question for cyclists and triathletes. Yeah. So are we so we've we've already hammered out that are we are we squatting heavy and below parallel and doing deadlifts from the floor and all that stuff? Unfortunately, and, yeah. Okay. Okay, <laughs> so we're doing that. You can't, so you, we're not able to talk this person out of making adjustments to that. Okay. So what I, what I would say, one way you can do this is you could stagger heavy squats day one, form day one on the deadlift, and then come back around to the next week on day one where you squat and deadlift, squat light, deadlift heavy, or... You can end up doing where you do a squat on day one, wait a whole week, do deadlift, only do that. But it really is just going to depend on um, the capabilities of the athlete, uh, how proficient they are at it. But there can be some advantages to squatting, deadlifting, and uh, squatting and deadlifting on the same day because it will allow you more time between let's say day one you squat day five you deadlift well then you have to turn around and you're squatting again on day one that isn't a bunch of recovery during this time and we know that bone takes about five days to adapt and heal so <clears throat> in some ways it might be good to squat and deadlift on the same day or even better a variation of the squat heavy deadlift and variation of the deadlift heavy squat and then giving it some rest maybe every three to four weeks, not having either one of them uh, in their competition form or backing off the load and intensity. So playing with the frequency and such and the volume. Awesome. Yeah. And that's, I want the listeners to go back and listen to that again, because what Brian just did, that is a, a artisan working on, and on how to go about that. But what you're talking about, about, modifying or alternating the days changing you're talking about bone adaptation taking five days these are all the considerations that a cyclist should take but it, then it comes back again to your clarifying question well who are we talking about and then you asked are we going to parallel for squat and off the floor deadlift and then really the question is well why what why does yeah. it matter so going back yeah. 20 minutes ago to your answer yeah if i could have a, a, the perfect uh, scenario i would just have them do maybe some elevated kettlebell deadlift sitting on some blocks here boom 
here. And then maybe they end up doing some, uh, I don't know, trap bar deadlifts instead of the kettlebell deadlifts. Or um, maybe some uh, front squats with the barbell if they have to have the barbell, maybe. Or they're just doing uh, some double wrapped kettlebell squats instead of the barbell. On. There's so many different ways to go about it. So that's actually very close to the last question here, Brian, and that is painting <laughs> in very broad strokes. If you're working with a cyclist, uh, so, you know, weekend warrior, masters athlete, someone who's riding six to 10 hours uh, a week, they really love it. They're riding three to four days a week. What would you say a, a decent program, again, painting in broad strokes would look like? Decent program for someone that's riding six to eight hours a week. Ideally, I would uh, have you. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna come back and ask you a question. Eight to ten hours is that pre? Is that getting ready to peak for races? Is that off season? Like where is that in the realm of relative capacities? That's the exact conversation I was hoping it would go, man. Okay. That that's the main point that I wanted to make out of this. And it, it, I wanted to ask you a broad question, let you run with it. And that is uh, for the listeners to understand it. It really depends. Where are you in the year? You know, what kind yeah. of adaptations are you having? So let's, that's the real question is, can you walk us through that thought process of the considerations you would take when designing that program in broad strokes? Okay. So broad strokes would be, obviously we know the goal. Um, what, what is their challenge? Is it posture, you know, after endurance, being able to stay upright and keep good posture? Uh, does their upper body start fading before their lower body? Is it hip drive and leg drive? Uh, do they get calf cramps all the time or quad cramps or hamstring cramps? What are their deficits? And then what are their weak points or what are, what are their strong points? Oh, dude, they're just, you know, they're super strong, you know, but they're, they're, not endurable or they're endurable, but they're, they're great sprint. They're not a good sprinter. They always get past at the end, you know, cause I've, I've watched some of these uh, documentaries on Netflix and I, I love it because they'll, they'll wait and then they'll take off and sprint at the end. So does someone, you know, basically pull everyone the whole way and then get past it then? Well, they need to probably get stronger. So we need to work on their hip and leg drive and their core strength. Um, so looking at every aspect of this person, their injury history, you know, their, their, their cycling age, are they 40 years old and really healthy and a former NFLer and uh, their hips are good and they're, and they're like another level of athlete? Well, shoot, you could probably get really creative with them, but it's going to come down to a baseline, establish a baseline, identify the strong and weak points, injury history, and uh Start with whatever it is that uh, typically works for a uh, a cyclist for, I don't know, eight to 10 hours. So maybe maybe we experiment with uh, the least effective dose. Maybe we start with Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you're riding, and then maybe a longer one on the weekend. And then you have a upper day and lower day in between there somewhere. And then let's say your upper body's strong, your lower body's weak, then we do the one that needs the most work, the furthest away from the hardest ride. And then we focus in on that. We try to build strength with that, you know, and it'll be done with the same types of things. Carries, drags, pushes, pulls, hinges, all those types of things. But uh, to be any more specific than that, I would need, you know, a human there. And uh, then I'd have to ask you more questions in particular about the, uh, the different uh, energy systems and, you know, the, the time on the road and then positioning of the bike and such. And cause that's the stuff I don't know. Absolutely love that, man. That is fantastic. Well, let's finish with this, Brian. Are there any questions that I should have asked you about strength training for cyclists to lift heavy stuff that I didn't? I don't believe so. The biggest thing is, is for everyone, this is one of the principles of strength that I teach is, leave something in the tank. Now for endurance, I get it's it's a little bit different, but in some ways it could be the same depending on if you're looking at it like some marathon runners, they don't blow it all out and running. They might run up to 20 miles instead of the 26th and peak for the marathon day. So 
leave something in the tank more times than not. Yes, you need to send it every once in a while just for maybe it's mental. I, I don't know what it, what it is, but very rarely in my powerlifting career did I hit my best lifts in the gym. I tried to peak, build the volume up, build the, the frequency up, save the intensity for the meet day because you only have so many big races in you. You only have so many big lifts in you. You only have so many days and heartbeats in you. So you, it's limited. So choose wisely when you are going full capacity, full send and save that for competition day, you know, and for the people are trying to be cyclists and really good at that. You blowing it out in the gym is not going to be the way I would approach strength training for you. It would be focus on trying to do what you're trying to do. And that's be a good cyclist, not a power lifter, not like, you know, so what if you deadlift 500 pounds, but your times are down or your endurance goes down? Like, so what? That's what happens a lot of the time when someone gets on a cycle, a cycle on their cycle and they get bigger and they can sprint better, but then they gas out and they have a whole nother can of worms to worry about because they got bigger, they squat 500, they deadlift 500, but their times are worse now. So what are you trying to be? You trying to be a power lifter, a strength athlete, or are you trying to be a really good cyclist or endurance athlete. And that's where the, the training in the gym is going to be different. You want to become a good cyclist in the gym, not a gym rat. Such wise words, man. Brian, this has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, can you help the listeners to find you online, to connect with you? What, what's the be best place for them to find you here? They can find me on YouTube and Instagram and Facebook, Brian Carroll 1306. 1306. And then uh, my home base website, powerrackstrength.com. And then if someone's trying to get, hold, get a hold of me through email, it's brian at powerrackstrength.com. And I do virtual consults and, and coaching. Some people are just, they want lifting form help so they don't get injured. Other people want a boost in their endurance training or whatever, and, and don't know how to go about lifting weights because they just see CrossFit or they were taught CrossFit and it wasn't working for them and they may have gotten injured. So I, I work with a, a, a pretty good variety of, of different athletes. So you can find me at powerrackstrength.com. And yeah, I, uh, I try to help as many people as I can. And I appreciate you having me on today. Brian, thank you so much, man. This has been literally a dream come true to sit here and, and hang out with you and talk. Uh, back in my powerlifting days, it was always, you know, what's Brian doing now? How can I get there? So thank you so much, man. Really, really greatly appreciate you and all you do. Appreciate you. Thank you. Hey, Menachem here. And I just wanted to ask if you enjoyed this episode or any of the previous Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete podcast episodes, please hit the subscribe button. Our goal here is to hit 50,000 subscribers or followers in 2023 before year's end. And it would really mean a lot to me to have your support and to know that you are out there listening, looking forward to each weekly episode that we put out here at the SSCT podcast. Thanks and have a great week. Talk to you guys next Sunday. That's it for this episode. Check out humanvortextraining.com for more great content and to keep learning.